We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. best thing to do when you have no idea what to talk about on podcast is let the listeners decide this is the arsenal vision post-match podcast my name is alex smith you can find me on twitter yankee gunner to mailbag episode mailbag uh asked for your questions on facebook on instagram on twitter and on discord for patrons we're going to get to those the first section is going to be with tim talking about his trip to barcelona for arsenal women and then clive and paul will be on and we will um we'll take your questions so that should be fun uh my flight to london is tomorrow and our event is Sunday, we've got representatives from the Arsenal Foundation joining us. We have uh, James Benz joining us. Uh, We have James McNicholas joining us. We have Tim, we have Clive, uh, myself at the Victoria Tavern on Holloway Road, um, starting at 3 p.m. local time on Sunday. That's the ticketed portion, but at 4.30 local time on Sunday, we're all having drinks and hanging out. So it's going to be great, and I hope you'll be there. I really, really can't wait. We'll try to do some fun uh, hashtag content while I'm over there, uh, video, audio, all kinds of stuff. So we'll see how that goes. Tim's on Twitter. So better hello, Tim. Hello there. All right. Don't have you for a long time, but I do have you. And let me say it is as good as I hoped it would be. Um, <laughs> let's just talk Barcelona. You went to Barcelona for the Arsenal women's match against Barcelona women. It didn't go great, but I'm curious if maybe the experience, uh, learning experience for the for the club, for the players, for yourself, was maybe better than the scoreline, which if memory serves, was it 4-1? 4-1, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it it wasn't really a surprise to anyone that is a seasoned watcher of this Barcelona uh, women's team. So uh, for people that don't know, they are by a long chalk the best team in Europe. They won the Champions League last year and they played Chelsea in the final and they were 4-0 up after half an hour. So that gives you a little insight into how good they actually are. And really, this is a bit like winding the clock back on men's football in the respect of this Barcelona women's team is a lot like the Pep Barcelona team hmm. um, that everyone knows and loves. They they perhaps, with the exception, they perhaps don't have that messy figure, but everyone else is really, really good. So they play very, very similar football to that Barcelona team. 
um, with the slight distinction that instead of like a messy figure, they have a striker called um, Asisat Oshwala, who actually used to play for Arsenal. And she, as a centre forward, she's like Drogba-like. Um, she's stronger than everyone else. She's faster than everyone else. She's a really good finisher. She makes really good runs. So imagine Pep's Barcelona team with Drogba up front. Up front. Mm. Um, <laughs> and yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like they've got that real exclamation point. And one of the things, um, I've spoken to Jonas about this a couple of times now, and uh, he, he said immediately after the game, he said to me, the thing is with this, uh, like this Barcelona team, is they've got three big ways they can hurt you. Their midfield three is very, very comparable in terms of the Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets kind mm. of thing. And they, I think I'm right in saying they all came through La Masia as well. Um, so this isn't actually a very expensively assembled Barcelona team. Most of them have come through the academy. So they've all grown up playing together. Again, the whole like Barcelona, you know, Amer- almost like American dream style Barcelona thing. Mm. And then they've just added some forwards. But then he said, so their midfield can pass around you and break lines. And then... They're wide players. Um, they've got a player called Caroline Graham Hansen, um, who's, uh, I can't remember if she's Norwegian or Danish. She's Norwegian. Brilliant player. They've got Lika Martins, Dutch, brilliant player. And they've got Oshwala up front. So they've got these two really dribbly wingers that are really good at beating fullbacks one-on-one. And then they've got someone who will run through you in the middle. And so he was like, basically, they've got every threat that you could imagine. They can pass through you. They can dribble through you. They can run through you. And um and so it wasn't a surprise uh, the scoreline nor the manner um, of it and and th- the fact is that Barcelona I think they'd do that to pretty much anyone in Europe with the form Arsenal women are showing at the moment you could definitely say they they're they're definitely one of the strongest teams in Europe kind of always have been but now they're they're kind of coming into that like top four, top five teams in Europe and and they got destroyed and Chelsea got destroyed and Barca played Man City last year and beat them 3-0 and they got destroyed. Like they destroy everyone essentially oh. and, and everyone's playing catch up with Barcelona. So it was an education in terms of, you know, when you measure yourself against the best team out there. Um, but it's not even just that. Barca would beat the second best team out there by a couple of goals, I think. Wow, it's so incongruous with what their men's yep. team is going through. Um, but, but then, like, I so sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. I, I said that to um, my co-host on the Arsenal Women Cast, Alex, who's a very seasoned Barcelona watcher. And uh, before the game, we did a preview, and I said that to her. I was like, "How how come the women's team is so good when the club's in disarray?" And she was like, "Well, if you're an Arsenal fan, you're probably quite familiar with that. To be honest with you, quite literate with the idea of a women's team that thrives in the face of overall club uh, catastrophe." Mm. I guess when you put it that way, who am I to disagree? Um, I, I, it, it's funny, right, though? We were in the Champions League. I don't know if you remember that, Tim. The men were. Oh, yeah. And uh, we were routinely tormented by Barcelona. I'm sure you remember yeah. that as well. And now we're not in the Champions League, but the women are. And they get to be tormented by Barcelona, <laughs> yeah, while the exactly, men's yeah. Barcelona team sucks, <laughs> but we can't get a piece of them. It's just, <laughs> it seems very unfortunate. I mean, how how do you receive it as a fan of the team? I mean, I guess when you go into a game where you don't expect to compete and you know the level is different, that can sometimes um, prevent an overreaction, negative overreaction, but it is humbling. And I mean, it's not like the Arsenal project is humble itself. I mean, Mm. 
there's a lot of talent there and they've splashed for big names. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how the, do you think the players were sort of circumspect about this and understood what was going on? And, you know, from coach to players and all the way through the club, was this, you never want to expect to get beaten, but I'm curious how Jonas um, reacted to it. And if the, the players were fairly downtrodden or a little more circumspect. So he said that he what because I one of the questions I asked him I was like you know to what extent were you expecting to not have the ball for most of the game and he said well actually not to this extent mm-hmm. so I I think even if um, subconsciously there's a kind of okay we're not the favourites here he was quite open I mean I I think he would have got I don't want to say a free ride that's not the phrase I'm after but like. He, he wasn't going to be scrutinized in the media about this because everyone knows the level that Barcelona are at. But he was he, he gave a press conference on Friday and it was fascinating because he was so open about it. And he said, well, to be honest, we had a game plan and I didn't think they'd be able to deal with it as well as they did. And he said, I underestimated them. So next time I've got to come up with a better plan. And he was very... He was very honest about that. He said, well, I thought I saw some weaknesses in this Barca team and it turns out they're not. Um, and and so that was really, really fascinating. And he kind of said, he, he gave a really fascinating dissection as well about what happens to a team. Like, so he said, the two oh, yeah, lessons... Yeah, I want to talk about this. I love this. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, actually, so bef- even on Sunday, he was asked, what are the lessons learned from Barca? And he said, there are two things, to defend better um, and to defend better as a unit, but to defend less. Um, and this plays into what he said on Friday because he was talking about like, doing better when you have the ball but he talked about like the psychological aspect of playing a team like Barca and I'm sure it's the same when the men's team play someone like Man City and he was saying what happens to you when you're under that much pressure defensively is when you get the ball you become conservative because you're scared and so he was saying what happens when you finally get the ball off them is you don't see Arsenal players you see Barcelona players so you start passing very very safely um, and he's, he, you know, because because you're scared, you're anxious, and you're thinking, oh, if I try that risky pass and I don't make it, we won't get the ball for another five minutes, um, and by then they might they might even score in that five minutes. So everything that you do, even when you get the ball, becomes kind of dominated by fear, and that's one of the things he's talking about. Because obviously Arsenal will play Barcelona again in December at home, and he was saying next time that's something I want to do better. Like we might have to accept that we will have, we won't, you know, we'll be like 30, 40% of the ball if it's a good day, but we have to do much better when we have that kind of 30, 40% of the ball. And he was saying like, you, you get governed by fear and, and that's what I've kind of got. He said, A, I've got to come up with a better game plan, but B, when we get the ball, we've got to do more with it and give them more problems. And that's, that, that's I think, his main takeaway. Yeah, I I think that's brilliant. I I do like that he's willing to talk tactics, you know, and talk about specifics and not necessarily um, platitudes, you know, just sort mm-hmm. of coach speak platitudes. And let's be clear, I understand why coaches use platitudes because first of all, I'm sure they look down at most of the people listening to them and feel like you wouldn't understand it anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I think there is there is a penalty that you can incur for being honest in the sense that you talk about what you're doing and then people are hypercritical of it. And the less you give in terms of red meat to be chewed on, the less abuse you can take for it in some ways. Yeah. And maybe the women's game with the tiniest, I, I don't 
I want this to come out right. No, I think but you're right. There's less there's scrutiny. Less scrutiny. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah, And so it's not put under a microscope. And maybe the people that are supporting that team and following them are more interested intellectually in it in a way. And it hasn't, maybe the, the women's game hasn't yet recruited the wackos, the psychos, yeah. the, the emotionally uh, stunted people who will just have a go over anything. He says, pointing to himself with all of his fingers. Um, I have a, since this is a mailbag, Pod, I actually have a question for you from the Discord if you're up for it. Mm, yeah, sure. Hedge blog on the Discord. That's obviously a blog about hedges, I assume. Um, which I which I would read, let's be clear. If Tim is on, my question is, am I alone in thinking Mana Iwabuchi hasn't quite found her form? I feel like she's got another gear. She's had moments of brilliance, but I don't feel it's been consistent, or am I being hypercritical? No, I, I I think that's probably fair enough. So uh, Mane Obuchi is um Japanese playmaker Arsenal bought in the summer, having courted her for many years. And she's uh, Vivian Miedema's best friend. She played with Viv at Bayern Munich, so she already has that relationship. And she's, um, as, as a player, like I can't resist the comparison. She's like Thomas Rosicki, but with a bit more end product. Um, but... I, I think there is probably an element to which players like that, like creative players like that, are, are a bit in and out. I think the thing is with maybe, I mean, first of all, um, the, the team rotates a lot. So she, like most players, is kind of in and out um, in terms of minutes at the moment. Um, still playing the majority of minutes, but like none of them are playing all of the minutes. But I think also our, our expectations of players like that are sometimes um, slightly skewed. Like when we see a creative player, like we want to see that final ball all the time. And actually the, the real, and, and yeah, that that's obviously the biggest value of a good creative player. But I think the real value of a creative player, and I see this in Erdegaard and I definitely saw it in Ozil, is like economy with the ball. So it's not, it's not just making those like those brilliant passes or those line breaking passes, but knowing like the rhythm of the game and just mm. never giving the ball away. And that's, that's kind of what Iwabuchi is like. Like she has got that final ball, but at the same time, she really understands the rhythm of a game. She knows, she knows when to go backwards. She knows when to go forwards, sidewards, whatever. Um, and she's, you know, like Rosicki, she's one of those move the ball, move myself, get the ball, move myself kind of kind of players. And she can do spectacular things. And she has done a couple of times. Like, I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect a little bit more, maybe just because of the level of her talent. And she's 29. She's a World Cup winner and everything. But at the same time, there's there's a lot of competition um in her spot and she sometimes plays wide she sometimes plays as a 10 so i think what the coach is looking for is for this team not really to have stars per se but for everyone like for there to be a lot of rotation and for pretty much everyone to be eight out of ten um all the time and i I think she's kind of meeting that if that makes sense it does make sense um time for another yeah sure andrew the hinkley gooner at from dial square on twitter asks and look these are the questions i've got the fact that they skew negative <laughs> may just be a reflection of the arsenal uh, uh sentiment right now cue for tim i've watched every arsenal women's game this season personally i've been disappointed with paris thus far mm-hmm. is she just settling in first touch and finishing etc poor yeah so nikita paris um i keep saying i don't like making these comparisons but but sometimes they're irresistible and quite useful. Nikita Paris is very Theo Walcott. Mm. She is all end product. 
Um, that that's the player she is. Can we can, she, can we get around the men's team then? <laughs> <laughs> and she is like she. So she is exactly that type of player. Like she plays on the right of a front three, but really her whole game is built on making that curved run infield. She can play up front. She has played centre forward, but she's better on the right of a front three. And so you know where I'm going <laughs> with this comparison. And yes, technically sometimes she can be a bit frustrating. Um, but she will get you goals and she will make you goals. Like she is the women's version, the women's football version of Theo Walcott in his prime, um, I might add. So I, I kind of, I do get that. I think of the new signings, um, the new attacking signings anyway, she's probably the one who hasn't quite settled in yet. Um, and I think a lot of that as well is just because she's competing with Beth Mead for a spot and Beth Mead has gone up a level this season so far so it's it it has been a bit made a bit more difficult um for her by that so i I'd, I'd be i i'd still be like quite paid like i think she'll get into double figures um for goals this season um no question so i i i do get that and i, I don't think she's quite there yet um but i think as the season goes on she'll be fine so let me ask you just about sort of the, the women's game and the growth of the women's game generally. I wonder, you know, as we, we've had a lot of discussion, obviously, in the last week about the takeover of Newcastle, there's some pretty shady shit in the men's game. There just is, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to suggest that that's the extent of it. It's all over the place. And I think people find it distasteful. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to present this as sort of like the women's game is condescendingly cute and sweet or anything like that, but is it possible that some of the less palatable aspects of the men's game and influences coming into the men's game creates an opportunity for the women's game to be a place for people to go who love football, want to support their club and want to distance themselves from some of the influences they see coming into the men's game? It's possible in terms of the environment around it. Um, Still the same owner. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Like who, who are Arsenal's title rivals in the WSL Manchester city and Chelsea. Mm. And where did that money come from? Um, It's it's inseparable. Um, And I'm sure like at the moment, Newcastle's women's team is in the fourth tier. Um, I I don't know how much um, this kind of new regime as it were, or the new ownership at Newcastle is going to put into the women's team. I would wager they won't be in the fourth tier. Um, for very well, because I would guess a, a, a much smaller amount of money can yes. make a massive difference very quickly uh, yes. at, the, at that level. Yeah, yeah as it exactly. would in the men's game, by the way. I mean, you know, yeah. five five million pounds in a fourth tier men's team, and you're you're going up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, Leon dominated Europe for a decade on a budget of about eight million a year, so it's it's it really is pocket change. So I, mm-hmm. I'd wager they won't be in the fourth. Well, whether they'll you know how much more they'll do i don't know but but it is because you know they're all run by the same people like the money all comes from the same place so it it's possibly hard like there is like a bit a bit of cognitive dissonance um required around that i think for arsenal fans it could be because if you're an arsenal fan and you want to watch arsenal with star players competing for league titles that's where you go at the moment. It could be for Barcelona fans. If you want to watch Barcelona play perfect tiki-taka football and win the European Cup, that's where you go at the moment. So maybe for some of these um, you know, historic superpowers, I guess, or historic powers that are currently under a little bit of threat at the moment, um, you know, if you're a supporter of one of those teams, 
Um, I, I'd I, I'd recommend it, <laughs> to be honest with you. But but overall, it's just too difficult to separate, you know, the the clubs from the actual projects themselves. And and yeah, as you say, like I, I feel it's slightly uncomfortable. Not not least because we, we do this to women um, in society. We kind of um, we we expect them to be like morally pure and to like correct all the kind of um, all the like the moral um, object, morally objectionable, <laughs> objectionable yeah. stuff that men do. Like we expect them to be like mothers and cleaners and all of that. Like there's some deep seated like psychological stuff that goes on here when we expect like or like you know if I was to say oh I, I really like women's football because it's got almost like um, amateur principles like that that's still kind of out of order because I'm kind of saying that these professional athletes don't deserve like to be paid 200 grand a week or something do you know what i mean like it, it feels I do like know what you mean I, I think it's I, what i will say tim just in response to that is i think there is just sort of an association right now and this is i admit probably reductive and oversimplification that the more money there is in something the more corrupted it becomes yeah of course. and so there's just a tendency to say oh there's less money in this thing and so maybe this thing is less corrupted yeah know? yeah and do you know what where women's football has a really big opportunity at the moment is that so it's something they're doing with the new champions league deal does own have the rights to the women's champions league and they're giving it all away free for the next i can't remember if it's three years or four years it's all free ungeo blocked you just wow. go on their youtube channel and every game is on there and that's obviously that's an investment right because what they're doing is they're trying to gauge what the product is worth because obviously in three or four years, they will start charging for it. And they want to know not just how much to charge for it, but they could come up with a completely different subscription model. Like women's football doesn't have to do all the things that men's football is doing. So they, they could even do a World Cup every two years, even if the men don't. If they wanted to, they could say, well, actually, we can do this. Yeah. Like if we take the Olympics less seriously we could do a world cup every two years and that'd be great for the women's game because it's like, you know, it's great marketing and we know interest booms and things like that. And they could, they, they could do with the champions league. They'll look at who watches what, and they might come up with like a tiered subscription model, for example. So let's say Arsenal's champions league group at the moment is Barcelona, Hoffenheim. And sorry, I don't know how to pronounce this. A Danish team called Kirsch. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they could do. I'm going to say that was right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <You're welcome>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and what they could do, like they could say, well, okay, Arsenal Barcelona that will cost you six quid to watch. Arsenal Hoffenheim will cost you three quid, and Arsenal Kirsch, um, either one pound or like just tick yes to we get to obliterate your inbox with junk email. <laughs> you know, so they could come up with like a tiered subscription model, or they could do, or they could say like, right, okay, English people are watching WSL clubs in the Champions League, so let's like charge appropriately or people are just watching Barcelona like there's a there's a lot of possibility to do things maybe slightly differently um which you know that that's that that's where the possibility is for women's football I think yeah interesting and and just a final thing I know you have to run and I this is a terrible thing to say is just a final thing because it's a huge topic but have you talked to any of the Arsenal players about what's going on in the NWSL um some shocking allegations some yeah. horrible uh uh, behavior by management and coaches and and sexual assault and I mean all all kinds of really grotty and unpleasant things going on and and the people that should have been in charge and protecting the players clearly did not um all the games were canceled uh in response to it 
obviously like that's not a league you cover directly, but I'm mm. curious if it's bubbled up into the conversations you've had with the Arsenal players and, and you know, if, if that's something they're keeping a watchful eye on. So not, not yet. I've not spoken to any players about it. Like before the kickoff against Everton on Sunday, all the players linked arms um, as a, as a, like a gesture of solidarity. And obviously there are plenty of players in the Arsenal team and, in other teams who've played in the NWSL, so obviously Tobin Heath is there, but yep. Lydia Williams and Caitlin Ford have played in the NWSL, so Steph Catley, so quite a lot of them are familiar with the league and some of the figures involved particularly. I, I think Jonas was asked about it in his pre-match press conference and I think what he said, and, and I think others have said this, has is, is really stuck as well, is that basically, like, I mean, this is all kind of... Sh- it is shocking, but it's kind of not surprising if that's, um, yep. you know, as, as terrible as that sounds. And he said, look, if we're being honest with ourselves, we can't pretend that this is probably an issue that's only happened in the NWSL, that this is something unique that's happened. And that's that's like whether this is like, I don't know, like a Me Too moment um, for women's football or whatever, whether other stuff comes out, like I, I don't really know what happens next. But I, w- I would be shocked and amazed if, like, this was an isolated issue. And, yeah, I, I think it's clear that heads are going to roll at the kind of executive level in the NWSL, and rightly so. And I, I think it's very much a watch this space um, kind of thing because this is the kind of thing that things like legislation get made about. As you would know, Elliot, in your kind of yep. former career, these are the things that that – triggering events yeah exactly exactly so i think unfortunately um as triggering and as as horrible as it is i i tend to think this is probably tip of the iceberg stuff well uh yeah not not great but dragging this stuff into the sunlight you know the what do they say sunlight is the best disinfectant right so you need you need to get this into the sunlight and and get rid of it um title season title on for arsenal we're going to be celebrating title I, I I think they've got a really good chance. They'll compete okay. with Chelsea. Chelsea don't, I don't think, look the best version of themselves at the moment, but they've still got loads of talent, which makes them very dangerous. So um, I, they'll be up there, and I think it'll be a close call between Arsenal and Chelsea, yes. Well, we will watch that anxiously and talk about it more, which we need to be doing on our podcast, but you you have a great podcast for that, Tim. So plenty plenty of time to hear you discuss it. Uh, Tim's on Twitter at Superdough. Thanks, bud. My pleasure as always. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back uh, and take your questions on the men's side of things. So stay with us, more to come. And in a new innovation that is designed to spotlight all of the talent at the Arsenal Vision podcast, we're going to record everybody separately because I had nothing planned for my Monday before my travel day. No, nothing whatsoever. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Yeah, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Um, we're going to dive right into the questions, get to you, get you as many as we can. And um, we've got a, a question in Discord from a man in the Discord who uh, <laughs> he sometimes stirs the pot a bit. But I think the question is interesting. I'm going to rework it. His name is Wendy Wilo. And everybody who's listening, who's in the Discord is like, what? He gets, what? Are you, but just hear me out. I'm going to reword his question. <laughs> if Arteta were to stop being Arsenal manager tomorrow, let's say, let's not use the sack word. Let's just say he stopped. He said, you know what? Mm-hmm. Screw you guys, whatever. Um, 
Do you think any Premier League club would go for him? And if not, where do you think his next job would be? In other words, like, we rate Arteta. We think there's something really special in there. It hasn't fully clicked yet, but even, even me as a skeptic, I'm willing to say I see something really special in there, and it's a work in progress. If, if let's say the Arsenal journey ends for him, even at the end of the season or whatever, where do you think that next job is? How do you think he's viewed in the game such that he would, you know, w- what would be next for him if not Arsenal? Do you think uh, that's the interesting one? I, and so that is a good question. <laughs> I think um, it's difficult. It puts in stark relief our our feelings versus maybe what the rest of the footballing world thinks. I suppose, like anything, you need a a vacancy. If you know what I mean, to really trigger yeah, your mind. And so there there are none. <laughs> there might be one. In, there might be one at a pretty rich club in the northeast. <laughs> I was just going to say that <laughs> Newcastle manager. <laughs> and you know, you give them what you know, what Man City did, you know, and how they did it and how they built that model. And he was there when it really did escalate, shall we say. Um, that just sort of makes sense now, I've said it <laughs> out loud. Um, but yeah, your point about Arteta being interesting is the point where my head is, really. And more importantly, I'll tell you why I always give him a little bit of a, more of a go than somebody else, many others. It's what people say in the game about him. And in the game... I always say football is a village. And if there was something really bad about somebody, it would get out. And even though his results have been patchy, his feedback within the game has been solid. And he is seen as somebody innovative, massively committed, really got a plan. And although sometimes we don't always see it, I'm sort of trusting the people that know. When And when we went lost on Emery, you know, I, there were people within the game, within the club, within the media that sort of knew the fit wasn't right and it started to creep, it started to leak. And I and I learned a lesson from that whole experience that people know when it's not right, you know, and listen to them, just read between the lines. And that's why I give Arteta a bit of a break. Um, but hey, look, things can change in three games, as you know. Yeah, they, they can. And I mean, the only reason I think it's an interesting question is because we took a big risk on him. And in some ways, we were rewarded almost right away with an FA Cup victory, so that's great. We've seen a development in him and and some concepts that I think are really interesting. We've also seen periods where it hasn't worked, and the results have maybe been not up to the level that we had hoped. I, you know, I think if we certainly compare what we've done so far with what our greatest expectations might have been, certainly on the attacking football side, I, I think you might say it hasn't quite lived up to it yet, but... You know, the question I think that you'd have is if if he were to be looking for another job tomorrow, I still think it would be a gamble much in the way it was for us because I don't think yeah. we know clearly enough who he is yet. I think we suspect there's someone very sharp and effective in there, but I don't think it's conclusive. You know, in the way no. you might look at other young managers and say, you know, they did something that was conclusively impressive early on, you know, whether it's a Tuchel or a Nagelsmann or a Klopp or, you know, whoever, some of those young up and coming guys who proved themselves definitively. Well, it depends It depends what you say by proving themselves mm-hmm. and what that success criteria is. I mean, there's a guy at PSG right now who's never won a trophy, right? He's got one of the biggest jobs in the world. Now, it's, it's how he operates that's got him that job, you know? It's how Graham Potter operates that's got people looking at him. It's how Rogers operates. Do you see what I mean? And this is why I go back to, it's about ways of working and how someone operates. And I think, 
you know, I've got my things I'm looking for on Arteta, and there's one thing I'm looking for in this club full stop is how we react under extreme pressure. Because when the pressure was on against Villarreal, we did not react well. We did not react well as a coaching staff, as a set of players. We just had to win a semi-final 1-0 at home and we couldn't do it. You know? And those things are the things that I'm looking for in the next level for us. Because we will have a big pressure game that we have to win at some point. You know, it isn't here yet. But that's the things. And how he reacts when someone's injured, how he reacts when you've got to make a big selection. That stuff has improved, but the pressure's not on yet. The pressure comes on in March and April. That's when it really hits. And so... That's what I'm looking for the next phase of his development. And if he does that better, um, or does you know, with results not dependent, just making the right decisions with the right style, with the, doing things the right way, I'll be fine. But I didn't feel that Villarreal game was well managed, and that still is back in my mind. Yeah. Max at Max underscore Rad 1 says... Who is best equipped to replace Shaka whilst he's out injured? Lakanga is a tidy player, but was a total passenger against Brighton. Now, I don't know that I agree with the last part of that, and I think he had a very specific role that maybe, you know, we discussed on the rewatch in terms of yep. dropping into that left half space to cover the, the, the space behind Tierney. But setting aside the second sentence, I think the first one is interesting. I think it's an open question. I don't think you could say Lakanga is definitively the guy. It's going to be roughly another month of football without Shaka, I would think. Um, so who, who in your mind is the best solution for that? Depends on the day. But what I would like to see, Elliot, as I'm sure you would, is just play two in midfield. You know, mm-hmm. just not mess about with this playing somebody 40 miles away from the centre midfielder. Well, I don't understand why we're doing that all of the time and we don't need to. Let the play develop. Don't start like that. You know, so let's own the centre of the pitch. Just give the kid a chance, right? Let's not make him cover big distances when he's just making his debut on every single ground, first time he's going there. Uh, let's let's just give him a chance, playing with somebody in a partnership. Distance is nice. Let Tierney progress up the pitch when we have good, solid possession, not start up the pitch too high, too early. That puts a lot of pressure on if we turn the ball over and our ability to contract. So I'd like to see us play that way. Uh, and, and I don't mind, I said it before, I don't mind Odegaard dropping in there. It depends on the day, depends what we're trying to do. I think... There comes a point we need to control football matches. There's different ways to do it, you know, physically, technically, different ways to do it. Distances, high line, low block, whatever you want to do, there's different ways to control the game. I like the idea of Odegaard deeper, I really do. But it won't work every day. And soon it doesn't, I'm sure I'll change my mind and I'll tell people I'm not sure about Odegaard deeper. You know, it depends. It's about Arteta picking the right day for the right players. I like if you're going to play the left back thing. Well, Maitland Niles is probably more suited than the Conger is. You know, due to the fact he's played there and he's happy on the touchline defending and he can contract us as quickly. So, if you're going to do that, play him instead. You know, so um, and he's played like a hybrid position before in, in the system when we had three at the back. So, the horses for courses, mate. Let's see what happens. But I like the idea of Odegaard, particularly for home games, um, what he can do when we want to control games and really push teams back and play. I like to see us play next to forward, you know, and, and play Odegaard deeper. Yeah. Well, here's a, here's one more about uh, my hobby horse attacking 49 unbeaten at 49 unscored unbeaten uns- underscore couple underscores there in case you missed it. Um, the biggest concern with the team is what they do in the opponent's box or don't do. I think that's fair. Which yeah. is the bigger contributing factor to the lack of goals scored few natural goal scores or system. Feels like the crux of the issue with Arteta's football. 
Mm, so when I when when people say, "Oh, system, system," I think what you're trying to do as a coach, you're looking for width and depth, right? So you create depth, you create a transition almost when you have good secure possession, right? So I think we struggled to get away from whether we went deep, we struggled to get away from the press versus Brighton, so we couldn't create we couldn't create that pass through the team style transition play and we struggled to hold the ball in central areas so we couldn't join up the attack couldn't get enough pressure around couldn't get enough waves as soon as we got a Lacazette on things looked a bit different so I think the answer for for attacking football for us is you need someone who can hold the ball in central areas on certain days I wasn't saying that after Spurs because Spurs gave us a midfield it didn't really matter we just ran we just ran through them but there are other days that people are going to stop the ball going to party in particular and really clamp onto us. And they're going to challenge us to go maybe slightly over the press, do you know what I mean? And, and, we, and we couldn't do that against Brighton effectively for long enough. So I think there's a personnel issue and I also feel there's a needs to be a change in emphasis. And I think that can now come because I think we've got good passing players in the back. And I think it's all about our security on the ball, holding the ball to create the, the skate routes we need to get to our talent up front. I did feel we had a few too many players coming to the ball at Brian. I'd like to see one or two more running away from the ball to create that space to then playing to secure the ball more more easily, shall we say, if that's good English. But that's just one game, and each game is different. So I'm a fan of... Pepe being on the pitch more often than other people are. I think he offers a threat which forces people to stand still and not press onto us. So, and that gives us space for Odegaard, Smith Rowe, Saka to do their escaping. Right. So, I think it's a personal issue with what we have. But I also think the ideal centre forward isn't here yet. And that's mm. in the transfer market, in my opinion. Um, well, I'm glad you asked that because I've got a question about that. And I know you're just about out of time. What I will say just really interestingly to me, Clive, is I think Arteta has a really weird problem that the players that maybe suit the type of football he'd like to play, Lacazette, Smith-Rowe, Odegaard, Saka, maybe don't have the end product of players like Martinelli, Pepe, Aubameyang. And I think if you ask me what players more neatly fit the positional play and and have the technical level that Arteta would want, it's Smith-Rowe, it's Odegaard, it's Lacazette, it's Saka. But if you said to me, you know, which players, if you just had to rank goals in a season... Do I have Martinelli capable of scoring more goals than Smith-Rowe and Odegaard? Probably. Do I have Pepe capable of scoring more goals than Saka? Eh, at this point in their career, maybe. Aubameyang over Lacazette. So, like, do you think that's fair that maybe, like, the players who potentially do some of the footballing stuff better don't necessarily do some of the goal-scoring stuff as well? Yeah, it's about psychology as a, of a player, right? So when Smith-Rowe comes on the pitch, he wants to get on it, connect, you know, create situations that can accelerate the play. And he doesn't mind getting the odd goal, right? So fine, and he's doing doing very 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 well for himself. I worry about right, his um, yep. energy levels, shall we say? And I worry about his ability to finish games. He always looks tired to me, but there you go. When Martinelli's on the pitch, high energy levels, but everything in his DNA says, "Get me near that box so I can get a shot or get in behind somebody." Or mm-hmm. so he's not thinking about overly thinking about combinations. He's doing that to help the team to make himself available. Then he's gone. 
right? And he's gone to the back post. He's gone to an area where he can score. And he's thinking about his finish. Aubameyang, a bit of combination play, but as soon as the second phase comes, I'm gone. Where can I get to? What spot can I get to for my shot for the next pass? Saka's a midfielder for me. He's the last pass merchant with the odd goal. Lacazette's a combination player. Odegaard's the last pass merchant. So it's a it's a it's a profile thing really. And this is why I I like Pepe because I think he can when he's in the box he turns into a centre forward. You know, he he, he wants to kill you. And I'd play I just, him at striker. By the way, I'd love yeah. to see him get a chance there. I, he's I know fin- it's weird. But. His finishing is just unbelievable. When he's there, and even and I just think. We need that. We need that in the team. We scored five goals in seven games. And we played We played okay for the last four, no drama. But five goals in seven games, I know we had some tough games, right? But that's still not good, is it, Eddie? I mean, I'm sure you know where we fit in the, in the charts. I don't think you numbers. need advanced metrics to, to tell you that's not great. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Go in the old onion bag. That's advanced metrics is not my strength. The listener knows. <laughs> so like, um, not, not needed in that case. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I like to see forward threat. I like it. But then as soon as we don't build up play effectively, I'm looking at the balance. But I do like, remember the old two plus two thing we've spoke about in the past? Yeah. I like two killers two creators in my front four diamond. You choose, right? But, but not everyone can play. You know, so you've got to sit people down every now and again. Just have two killers, two two people that combine. That's your front four diamond. And you add somebody as the fifth lane guy. And it's normally Tierney to set the play. That's That works for me. And why don't we just stick to that? Right? So. It's why I think you see, you know, Liverpool, for example, thriving so much because in Jota, Salah, and Mane, and to some extent Firmino as well, like, those players can do both. You know what I mean? Those are yeah. players who can do both. And at the very, very elite level of the game, if you can do both, then you solve a, you solve a system problem and a selection problem, right? Because you say, yeah. hey, build the play, beat a man, and score all the goals. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, it's, football's easy, right? So, yeah, um, Eddie Longbridge asks, and, and we had a lot of questions like this, should Arsenal look to bring in a new striker to replace Aubameyang and Lacazette this summer or just go full youth project with Martinelli and Balogun? A lot of people like uh, Don Mikel 17 uh, said, you know, <clears throat> what striker should we target? And there were a lot of questions about Isaac. Um, and he says, the more I see Isaac, the more I see King Thierry. That's my choice. Yours. So do we go get a striker? Do we lean entirely on youth? I I think no, but I, is, is I, Isaac the guy? What do you think? Yeah, I think the this project needs needs um, one more poster child, shall we say. Right? And it needs to be a forward that everyone recognizes that's the crown the jewel. Yeah, it does. And this is where the money should be spent. If we can get some bodies out and um this is where the money should be spent. Isaac is obviously is is a nice player. Um he may be a little bit young and uh, to put the, the the weight of the world on his shoulders. But about already being, doing it to plenty of young players, but what's one more? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, Abam Young is will still be here so he can share the burden and so that makes sense. Isaac is slightly um, different in body shape to, say, a Balogun, but we know Balogun should be on loan anyway. And then Balogun takes the third striker role. And hopefully back in Europe, there'll be plenty of minutes for him, you know, he says, hopefully. So, yeah, Isaac looks nice. Um, there's a couple of, a couple of English players, obviously Calvert-Lewin, 25, Ollie Watkins, not sure. Um, nice player, side foot merging in the box, a bit of movement to help set the play. 
maybe a younger version of Lacazette, but not quite dominant physically enough for me. He does run the channels quite nicely, but not quite dominant. But I'm still looking. I'm still YouTubing on that one. Calvert Lewin, mm-hmm. he's a little, he's a little bit. Um, he, he's a six, li- man, you've got the login for Y Scout. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't care about my credibility, right? So, uh, so um, <laughs> clearly, I don't either. Let's be honest. <laughs> and so, um, Calvert Lewin, I think some he's a monster forward, really good in the air. You know, he gets himself on the back post beautifully. I mean, in the air, I mean, he's without peer. Seriously, he's unbelievable. But sometimes I, thought, I think he lacks a bit of smoothness, but I, I'd have him over Watkins. And there's somebody that my mate Tom talks about, um, uh, Yusuf N. Nesri at Sevilla. I'm not sure I got the name mm-hmm. quite correct. Yeah. I quite like him. I quite like him. He's a lefty finisher. He can sprint. He can move. I quite like him. He's 25. He's a good age. But he brings a bit of devil. I think he's had a bit of a recent injury. So, again, he's on my research list. But quite what I've seen from him, he's a sort of one-touch finisher that looks good. And there's Vlajevic, which, which I like. Again, he's a, he's a player everyone's looking at. So I don't think there's a massive set of talent out there. You know, I've got a couple other ones I like. There's a guy called Cody Gakpo. I think he plays for PSV. Again, he's a left winger stroke forward. Somebody weak, he's 22 years of age. He's about six foot one, runs like the wind. You know, a bit like a young Abamian. Do you know what I mean? Very strong, central, early shots, can carry the ball, make his own shot. I quite like him as a wild card. And I also like Ismaili Sarr at Watford. I think there's a player in there that's in the wrong club. He's trapped. Again, another tall, fast player that can pin people back, run the sides, banging shots, can carry the ball. I tend to like winger forwards that can carry. You're going to make the Discord happy with the SAR talk. You want to go in Kunku too while we're... No, in Kunku, well, I've done in Kunku for the first time. We should have got him when Emery was here, yeah. right? So um, I think that's your Purcell, to be honest. We could have got him for 10, I, 12 million, so... I have my eye on on two players myself. They're young again, so you, mm. you always have to... You're speculating. Uh, one is a young French player. Uh, the other is currently at Dortmund. Um, I think you know the names. I don't want to mispronounce them, but they're Mbappe and Holland. I <laughs> yeah, think. They're, they're not bad. Uh, all right, fa- last question, because you're leaving now. Thursday, we'll be at the FCA Awards together. Will yes. I out-drink you? I, I believe I will. Yeah, I think you may do, considering you know I've got to travel home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? and, and I will literally just be able to pass out in the elevator up to my room. And I'm going to be a professional and um, be a decent guy for the people that we're going to meet. Well, oh, you don't have to me. be. <laughs> no. I'm going to be a mess, a stone cold mess. It's going to be streamed live to everyone, and I am proud to say that uh, you will most likely not see me in polite society after it. Yeah, it'd be good. I'm looking forward to uh, you know meeting you face to face. It'll be nice and. Um, we won't be face to face at my height. You'll yeah. be meeting me like you know, <laughs> face to top of my head. But yeah, okay. so we meet you face to face, and there's a lot of people there that we'll know. I think more than we realize. So I'm looking forward to that. So it should be good fun. As am I. Clive's on Twitter. At Clive PFC. Thanks, bud. Thank you very much. Don't you go anywhere, people. Paul's up next. We'll talk to you uh, after this uh, little musical. Interview. We're back. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. So pause. Woohoo! How's your fall going? It's it's fall, right? It is fall. It is falling. Lots of leaves everywhere. Everywhere you don't want them. It's and a nice time of year. Like it's picturesque until yeah. you have to get the rake out. 
Yeah. Um, and then you gotta, you know, you you gotta get that one last mowing of the lawn to make sure it's it's tidied up and get the rake and the leaves and all that. So it's like mm-hmm. it's amazing how many tools are needed and how much work is needed to manicure a lawn when only yeah. one tool is needed. Sure. To manicure and groom your body hair. <laughs> am I am I picking up on a manscape vibe? I think I am, Paul. Because you know what. Yeah. When it comes to below-the-waist grooming, there's no need to carve your pumpkins this Halloween because Manscaped is here to upgrade your grooming experience. Yep, that's what it says in the copy. There's nice. no need to carve your pumpkins. Look, I'll make this short and sweet and painless. Wow, that <laughs> context <laughs> to what we're discussing. That's uh, that's not a good intro, but we all groom. Like, this is the dumb thing, right? All the silliness aside and all the sophomoric sort of maybe uncomfortable banter aside like we do body grooming and most of us i think now in this enlightened age do potentially shave our privates and our maybe do some chest and underarm grooming and maybe some sideburns and nose and ear hair and like you can do it with a good tool or a bad tool you can do it with a, a an old razor in the shower you can do it with like some cheap trimmer you got on amazon that can't get wet and like the plug doesn't stay in and the battery doesn't work and it nicks you a few times every time you do it. like no it's just not there's no need this has ceramic blades skin safe technology lawnmower 4.0 has a battery that just goes on and on and on and on you just set it in the cradle to charge it you can leave it in the shower it is wet or dry it has a beautiful um bright uh, uh led light so you can actually see what you're doing down there, which is turns out pretty important. It has uh, sizing guards for doing things like sideburns and eyebrows and stuff. You need to do that. There's the weed whacker, which does your ears and your nose, um, which unfortunately at this stage of my life has become a necessity. Now they have like uh, body washes and all kinds of, of nice smelling, effective tonics and things like that for you, plus a shed bag for your for all of the stuff to take it with you when you travel. So go to manscaped.com. Use promo code ArsenalVision. It's 20% off and free shipping. Like, that's the thing, right? Like, you know, where they can get you sometimes, and, and I know this because we we have a, a, a web store for, for some pod merch, and, like, shipping's a pain in the ass, and there's no way that we're just not big enough to be able to offer free shipping because we do third-party shipping, and they won't offer it for us. And, like, it's frustrating because I, I, I hate it. Well, this is free shipping and 20% off when you use promo code Arsenal Vision. So go to manscaped.com, use promo code Arsenal Vision, get 20% off free shipping, try the lawnmower 4.0. You're going to do the job, do the job with the right tools, and then, uh, you know, you can also sign up for Patreon and never have to hear these ads again because we do ad free editions. Paul, is that enough of that? Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Everybody does groom nowadays, don't they? I feel like, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, so do you want me to share a slightly unpleasant story? I will. Why not? Um, yeah. So going back to like, I was just out of college. This goes back a long, long time because I'm an old, old person and I was dating someone and they like basically made the comment that they were unhappy about the fact that I didn't do that. And it like really hurt my feelings. <laughs> I don't know why, but like I felt, yeah. I felt like so ashamed and like, like something was wrong with me, but like that, you know, it's hard. And yeah. then, then I, but I did it and uh, we wound up break, breaking up. So screw that. <laughs> did, probably be, did, probably did because you broke up with a girl because of your beaver. <laughs> to be fair, uh, she she enriched the life of my wife subsequently, right? By setting oh me on a better path. Okay. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten yeah, yeah, married sure. if I hadn't gotten that advice. This is yeah. this is in look such at my a stage in life because because <laughs> you're sharing. I feel like I should share. Like uh, my grooming requirements are a little different. Uh, you know those old guys that grow their nails like ten feet long and stuff over time. Like I occasionally have like a really long pube that I have to oh, yank out. No, no, 
No. That, that's about it on my side of things. I just, no. you know. I, I, I guess I'm a bit more hirsute. But okay, uh, added demolisher on uh, Discord. Okay. The man with the biceps says, what do we do with Pepe? Accept uh, our losses or re-sign to a new deal? I think that maybe sets it in too harsh a light, Addy, but that's okay. How much do you think we could get for him in the transfer market, Paul? How much could we get for 72 million pound Pepe? Yeah, do we accept our losses, re-sign him? How much could we get for him? What do you, what do you think about it? The, the the what do you do about a problem like Pepe? That is a quote from a musical. I'm not phrasing it that way. Anyway, yeah. Well, you're sort of amortizing your loan over time. So once you get to the end of it, you've mostly paid it off, and then you just look at Pepe in terms of what's his value to the club and his contribution. Uh, like I think to be harsh, probably you say, "What can we get for him, and what can we save in wages?" And you say, can we do better with that money elsewhere? And probably the answer is yes. Now, I have a soft spot for Pepe for sure. And I think he's a very talented guy. But I think he needs to adapt to the program better or be more impactful. And uh, we have other options at the moment that play in his position. So I think it is a... One of those tough decisions you have to make, and I would lean towards seeing what you can do. What do I think we could get from maybe something in the 25 to 30 range? I mean, it depends what the market's like and whether it's buyers. I mean, what can you get from for Laka? Absolutely nothing at the moment. It doesn't mean he's worth nothing. Um, so it depends on the market a bit. But in a more <coughs> reasonable market, maybe we get something like 30 million. And maybe he's paid 140 million, so that frees up some wages too, and that's part of the analysis. Yeah, I mean, the thing I would say is that you you almost certainly have to replace in some respect, in the sense of you have some young players and some old players, and he's the one that sort of fits in that that range. And so, I mean, I, I think you can't just sell Pepe. I mean, I guess you can just sell Pepe and let the young players grow into that role, but I I think you'd be light an attacking player. Scott actually asked a question about this, um, Scott Willis, but like he's literally been on two different Arsenal Vision podcasts in three days. So I don't, I don't think we need to take Scott's yeah. question because he gets yeah. his share. Scott. For God's uh, yeah, sake. For God's sakes, man. Um, okay. So uh, Sham Johnstone, and I, that is not my opinion of him. That is what I'm not saying like that Johnstone fellow is a sham. His name is Sham yeah. Johnstone. He's a sham at, of a mockery of two shams of a travesty of a Travis Johnstone. Travis Sham mockery. Um, at Dope Gunner, because he's dope mm -hmm. and he does dope stuff. It recently broke that Arsenal told Saliba a while back that he is still an important part of the club's future. We can mm -hmm. discuss if that's actually true or not. Mm -hmm. If he has to return, how would you incorporate him into a side with White, Gabriel, and Tomiyasu already there? What do you think? Two, two prongs of that. Do you buy that that was told to him or that that is just some, you know, improving PR on Arsenal's front? And if it is indeed true, how do you answer the second question? I don't know if it's improving PR. I hope it isn't. I, I'd be very skeptical, but uh, I wouldn't completely dismiss it um, because it's too easy for then Saliba or his agent to knock it back and say, no, they didn't. So... <laughs> <laughs> like, don't do bad PR. I don't. I don't think you can. Like that. That feels like a bridge too far, though, right? Like, if the club goes out, oh, we told him he's part of our plans, and he comes out, he's like, they did no such thing. Like, then you are an open war at that point. Yeah, <laughs> but like he said some stuff along the way. Like that's true. You, yeah. you he know, hasn't been shy. No. <laughs> yeah. So like he mightn't do it right now, but towards the end of the season, and he wants to do something different, he can come straight back and say, eh, "That's BS." 
especially if the club lean into it a little more. So who knows? Mm. I like the sound of it. I think that would be, I, I mean, I, I do think there's a massive rift there that that is not easily bridged um, apart from circumstances like they, they say, please come back and they play him continually. But to bring him in as a backup could be challenging. And is, it, you know, the problem is if he comes back and, if the idea is we bring him back and he's very, very good, well, then um, what are we bringing him back for? I mean, I think that's a good problem to have, but uh, it's kind of duplication. We have Ben White there, so either he's not good enough or Saliba isn't good enough because you want a starting partnership that basically starts all the time. Mm. Um, so it's a good problem to have, and you could sell one of them, I guess, if you just want to be pragmatic on it. Um but we should definitely want him back and he should definitely be good. And I'm all for that. And then maybe for a season, we have two guys who are really talented and one doesn't, one guy doesn't play enough and we sell one of them for a shitload of money. Um, I don't know. We don't need three center backs. We don't need two top level uh, right center backs. Um, it would be a great problem to have. Uh, it'd be great if he was worth 30 million to us or somebody else and above. Um, I hope he does great in Marseille. I don't really understand what we're doing at right centre-back. I could have seen us... I, what would have made sense to me was us having him this season as a backup right centre-back. That would have made sense to me. It, if he does what he's on on a trajectory to do at Marseille and become a, a mm. proven right centre he should have gone on loan in the uh, Premier League this year. We tried to get him to and he didn't want to, but that's really would have been the great answer for everybody because it would have been him showing himself in our league, proving himself and increasing his value for us, for him, for everybody. Um, but he wanted to go to Marseille, so so be it. Does let, that answer let, the question? Yeah, it's the, the complexity is there because let's face it, mm. there aren't a lot of clubs that have elite center backs backing up starting center backs. You know yeah. what I mean? No, I'm not saying Saliba's elite. But what I'm saying is, if this is a player that's on trajectory to be excellent, he yeah. is not going to accept being the third choice center back in a back four. I think it's further complicated in the sense that a lot of this is down to Arteta too, because if Arteta were to go, I think there's a chance that the next manager might say, I don't know if I that want Tomiyasu. Well, what I was going to say is, I don't know that the next manager would want Tomiyasu as a fullback. It's yeah. a very specific role he's being given. I think the next manager might come in and say, I love Tomiyasu as a center back. And so now Ben White, Gabriel, and Tomiyasu are in the center back group. And maybe there's another right back that manager wants. And now Saliba's in a group that includes Tomiyasu, White, and Gabriel instead of just Gabriel and White. It all gets very murky in that respect. Because I think Tomiyasu has the potential to be a very, very good center back and a good fullback in this system, but a very, very good center back if we change system. And so... Is someone I think the, the great caliber. point, mm-hmm. yeah, the great point you make there is if the manager changes, the calculus totally changes because just in the simple scenario of White versus Saliba, he may see it the other way around. But and he may have other uses for Ben White. Yeah, right. But the money spent. So, and this is yeah. why I think the moment Ben White was bought, the die was probably cast with Saliba, mm. in the sense that there aren't a lot of elite center backs who are willing to be third choice and your 50 million pound English center back isn't going to be second choice. And I get, I guess the, the open question was, well, if Gabriel hadn't looked as good as he's looked, his position might've been more in jeopardy. And you could say that the, the duo could be 
Saliba and White because Saliba has yeah. played left center back. Uh, anyway, a new manager could change the calculus for yes. everybody. That's yeah. just the way it is. All right, here, here's one that I think is a pretty straight answer, but it's been bouncing around as an idea, so I thought it was fun to handle it. Uh, Gunnar Durden at Gunnar underscore Durden asks, "Would you guys have Ox back at Arsenal on loan?" Three question marks. So he, he's that. flummoxed That's by the three question marks, and, and he does say on loan, but I yeah. Mean, yeah. Mark Irwin from The Sun was floating that story yesterday. I just Which tells you how much credibility there is to it. But yes, go ahead. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> actually know how much credibility he has apart from The Sun. Yeah. Um, uh, no, absolutely not. Um, like he had a time at our I, – I was very happy with the money we got for him. Uh, Liverpool are good at selling. That's the other thing to keep in mind. So we won't be getting them dirt cheap. Um, well, for, they, for, the, for the question – on loan, yeah, would you take loan. him on loan? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know what that. I mean, I guess you consider it in like, is that the best loan we can come up with? Aren't there I other just don't loans? Know what role Injuries? he solves? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you wind up with a guy who you're lucky if he plays half the time, lucky, and yeah. then you've got a guy who's either standing in the way of players you bought, like Sambi Lakanga, or he's standing in the way of young players you have more investment in developing up front, like Saka. Pepe, Martinelli, Smith, or like, I just don't, I don't see the role where he's reliable enough or good enough to improve us in a place where it wouldn't come at the expense of someone we have more of an investment in. Sure. And he's never really proven anything anywhere. He's had games. He's had halves. He's had goals. Um, but it's not like he ever went ever anywhere and people said, yep, yep, he's a starter for us. He'll he play every week. Fit, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, um, and even when he has stayed fit, he still you you still scratch your head and say, "Well, he switched off defensively, or what is he?" Or you know, I got two I really like here. Uh, I'm going to start though with Derek Scranar. Derek Scranar at Derek Scranar. Sorry, Derek. <laughs> presumptively, um, what rule change would you rather see in the Premier League? An orange card mm -hmm. where the player receives a yellow and five minutes off the field, not quite a red, in other words, between a red and yellow, sort of a sin bin th thing, or a fourth substitution per team? Uh, I think there's mileage in some kind of sin bin rule, whether it's that one exactly. Because... Um, because the, the the massively blunt tool that the referee has between, I can give him a, a first yellow, but if I give him a first yellow, then he's on the bubble. And, oh, a second yellow, I won't send him off, uh, which we just suffered from. Um, <clears throat> and Manchester City suffered from against, uh, who was it? Liverpool? Yeah. James Milner should have been off for that second yellow. But the referee looks at it and says, do I want to totally screw up the game? No. But if he could have sin-binned him for 10 minutes, he would have. and Or 15 or 5 or whatever it is. I think I don't like changing the nature of football. It's never been like that. Um, and maybe it gets a bit bitty. Um, so you don't want it. You don't want people. You don't want the refs trigger happy. But I think there should be an interim option between one yellow and two yellows. It, it totally changes the calculus <clears throat> for referees and for the game. And the question is, does it do it for the better, right? So yeah. is it the case that referees become more willing to show that, that card, that's, let's call it a second yellow, 
that leads to the, the five minutes off the pitch or 10 minutes off the pitch, whatever it is, <laughs> say five minutes for the sake of argument. That's how he asked the question. And therefore, you get less tactical fouling, you get more player protection, or is it the case that players conclude that referees are going to be more inclined to give that orange card than the red? So suddenly the level of sort of aggressive tackling and dangerous tackling goes up because the calculus players do is that I can get away with this. This isn't going to get me sent off for more than five minutes. You know what I mean, Paul? Like you never know it the is. externalities of a rule, right? Like sometimes you pass a rule with the goal of doing sure, A sure. and you instead wind up producing the opposite of A, whatever that would be, Z. Yeah. And so like, would it be the case that players might say, oh, you know what? Five minutes off the pitch is worth it for me to make this challenge. Whereas a full red card might not have been um yeah, yeah I, I think the calculus though <laughs> yeah i think in your answering the question you've got to assume one of two things will the referees do it well in which case i'd like the sound of it will the referees just do it badly and annoy us by their massive inconsistency <laughs> you know and just answer. make things worse <laughs> and therefore the players uh, take advantage of that inefficiency in refereeing refereeing in which case no thank you so I would do the fourth sub because I think what you can do. That's Paul, nice and clean. Well, here's what I was going to say also. If you just improve VAR, right? Like if you get VAR to the point where it's not a stupid joke and it actually works. Yeah. VAR can actually do what the orange card would be intended to do, which is really like just make sure the rules are enforced a little better and a little more consistently. At least theoretically, we haven't seen it in the Premier League yet. The fourth sub I mean, I, I think that is a much cleaner and more obvious thing, and especially with the way the footballing calendar is working, and now there's talk of the World Cup every two years, and like, it just, it makes a lot of sense. I think you can keep the energy levels of a game up so that, you know, the games don't necessarily peter out. I think you can change them more to make them a little more interesting. I know it favors the big clubs, but I would also say in the Premier League, teams are getting so deep and so much money is in yeah. the league now that like, I don't know that you have the days of like, the next sub for Brighton is a guy who shouldn't even be playing professional football, which was sometimes the case with some of the teams that came up to the Premier I also League think it's really short-sighted because one of the things teams in the middle and lower uh, part of the Premier League do is bring in younger players, develop them, and send them on. And I think in oh, yeah. sell them on. I think in the medium to long term, it gives them a chance to showcase and develop their own talent. I know they're against the bigger clubs having this option, but I think it's incredibly short-sighted. It, um, they benefit from it too. It gives them extra legs at the end of the game if they're holding on to a draw or um, kind of shoring up their def defense. It's such a marginal difference between, you know, does does it really matter if Pep brings on four worldies instead of three in terms of a subs versus say um i don't know brentford bringing on like next next season when they've built up their squad a little bit more another good mid-level guy to help kind of put some legs on the wing like from a player standpoint and from football standpoint it's clear we're running these guys into the ground with new competitions, World Cups every two years, you know, more and more and more and more and more. And you need to give the players and the managers options to keep these guys fresh and to keep them from getting injured. And that should come first. And I think actually all the teams in the Premier League would benefit. Maybe the 
the wealthier teams will benefit slightly more, but there's bugger all in it, and the players will benefit. Like if you're a young player, a young player, the next uh, Saka coming through, the the fourth sub is wonderful for you. If you're Balogun, it's one you might actually get on the pitch before kind of five minutes to go. You might actually play a real... I you were going to say before next season. <laughs> before <laughs> next season. It, it's good for developing young talent in English football. Do it. Mm. Um, well, that kind of leads then, I guess, to Seattle Gooner's question on the Discord. Mm-hmm. Remember Gabriel Martinelli? We had quite a few questions about this. Mm. Um, mm. But I like remember Gabriel Martinelli. <laughs> That's a fair enough introduction to it. Um, uh, yes, Lewis I knew him well. At Mikeo Saka says, if you have to sell one of Martinelli and Balogun, Balogun, who would you rather keep? Well, it's funny, right? Because my initial reaction was obviously Balogun. We have no idea what he is. Martinelli, okay. we think he could be a star. But the funny thing is, like, striker is clearly more of an area of need for the future. Mm-hmm. Martinelli clearly would recoup a bigger fee at this moment. Mm-hmm. And Martinelli is the one who, if we don't sell him, He's he might angle a leave soon if he doesn't make a place for himself. And Arteta mm-hmm. hasn't been able to find a place for so. Like the irony is, do I think Martinelli's better than Balogun? I do. Do I think he's better than him right now? I do. Do I think Martinelli has a role in this team that will be satisfactory to his ambitions and and has the ability to carve one out? I'm not convinced. Mm-hmm. Whereas Balogun plays a position that we know is going to become an issue as soon as this summer. So like, yeah, I I guess I'd rather keep Martinelli. But I'd rather keep Martinelli in a world where Martinelli has a clear role and we start to see him reach this immense potential that so many of us think he has. How do you how do you resolve this? I mean, it, this, this is where not having European football is just a big problem. Yeah, uh, and a fourth sub would be nice. Look, yeah, I that, think, well, that's why I thought it was the great next question because he'd be playing a lot more if we had that, yeah. Yeah, uh, I like Balogun a lot. I've cooled on him a little bit and that's not his fault. We just haven't seen very much of him and the few minutes he's had here and there. Striker, I mean, yeah. Yeah, hasn't really helped him. So he needs to go on loan. Um, Martinelli could be an absolute worldie. He's a shot monster. He's a, he's a, he's a tearaway. He's a whirling dervish. He's a Tasmanian devil. Um, I think he's going to have a, a phase in this season when he gets to show his stuff and I hope he does it. I think his upside is is basically top level. It doesn't mean he is he is and will be top level, but he absolutely could be. I think that's a real stretch to project that onto Balogun. And I think you, whenever possible, you want to keep your talent in the club. Like, great, you can sell them and you can get some money. Who gives a crap, right? You you get some money and then you spend it and that's hit and miss, right? So if you might have a worldie or a top-level player or a real a guy who is a game-changer, first you want to see if he works out for your club before you think, ooh, we could get some money for him. Um, you can do both. He can be a worldie for your club and then you can get some money for him. So it's not even close for me. I, I still have high hopes for Martinelli. I'm, I'm concerned because we haven't seen him, but then we are concerned about everything before it happens. So I think he will have his time this season. I hope he's ready. I hope he's good. I hope he's tidied on the ball. I hope he follows the game plan and doesn't just run around like crazy pressing, which we also like. I think the problem with Martinelli is he's much more appealing to the fan watching him because of all of that energy and enthusiasm and endeavor and pressing than he is necessarily to any coach 
including his own coach, who may love that aspect of his game, but wanted him to follow the plan for the game. And so I think there's this tension between fans who think, oh, he was great today, and the coach who says, uh, well, actually, he did some good things today, but he actually undermined what we were trying to do overall. So he's uh, obviously this is a season in which he should be well bedded in. He should understand the plan, and hopefully it all comes together on all sides, and we all love each other, and he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. We're all going to love each other regardless. Um, yeah. Final question here. Dush Dushyant Gupta. Dushant. Oh, yeah. I'm Gupta. looking at it here. Dushant, Dushant Gupta. Yeah. Dushant says, how do we tackle the three at the back formation going forward? And just to be clear, he means, how do we handle it when other teams played? He says, so far, Brentford, Chelsea, and Brighton have used it successfully against us. Other Premier League teams would probably look to use it against us as well. And he's got a point. The funny thing is, you go back a few seasons, and we routinely ripped apart back three teams with runners in the channels between center backs and the space where the wing backs vacated. We, we destroyed Chelsea a few times with uh, Alonso not being able to handle Bellerin uh, going back the other direction, but lately it has been a problem and it's one that seems to really inhibit our attack more than anything. Now that could just be, you know, rewatching the Brighton game. I just thought the players weren't brave enough. They sunk too deep to, to cover the threat of the wingbacks and to cover the pressure that we're facing rather than stretching the pitch, forcing them back, having the space to attack. So maybe it's more just courage than tactics. But what do you think about our response to other teams using the back three against us? Um, I don't think we've, like, I guess I don't, uh, I think tiny sample size, basically. I, w I wouldn't be losing my shit over, oh my God, they're playing a back three. Um, like we play a back three, <laughs> uh, like Tierney goes up the wing and now you're basically playing a back, back three, two, and you effectively have a couple of wing backs depending on who's playing on the right. I mean, it's a narrow margin between a back three and a back four and like Chelsea. Okay. Well, Chelsea's Chelsea. They could play a back two and we're probably still in trouble against them. Um, Brighton. Look, that's 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 just the latest data point. Not our best day. More to do with us than to to do with them, in many ways. I mean, conditions, the way they press, blah blah blah. Uh, us trying to play out from the back or go long, and going long wasn't going to work in that kind of weather because we've got midgets up front and Aubameyang and nobody to get the knockdowns and like. I just think it's a tiny data size. I don't think we have a particular back three issue that I've seen that we can't handle, we can't face. Uh, obviously, the best way to match up to a back three with two wing backs, if the team's good, is to match up in a similar format. And I'm, I'm all for us having the flexibility and being able to pivot to a back three with two true wing backs. Um, but... You know, maybe you do that against Chelsea. What we did against Chelsea with our, our midfield two didn't work, so we shouldn't do that again. But I think that's how we did it. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you think we have an issue against a back three? Um, the problem with football, problem with any sport, but especially football, is that it is beset on all sides by small sample size challenges, yeah. right? Like, something works against you in two or three games and suddenly you have a problem with it, right? When yeah. it could be the fact that we faced Chelsea without the players we wanted to have and we faced Brentford without the players we wanted to have and we faced a Brighton team that pressed us really high in really bad weather and we were sloppy and didn't get out and suddenly say, ah, we can't play a back three team when like we 
beat Chelsea, I believe, in a back three last season. Um, I don't necessarily think we have a back three problem. I think we have a courage problem um, Mm. in that I think our tendency when teams press us territorially and and want to occupy more advanced spaces with wingbacks and things like that, instead of our response being to say, oh yeah, you want to play that game? Well, we're going to position- Bring it. These, Bring it. Yeah, we're, we're going to play Martinelli and position him on the halfway line with Aubameyang, and we're going to sit Saka just in behind on the right a little bit, and we're going to let Tierney and Tomiyasu try to cover the extra men. And yeah, maybe party will drop in a bit, but we're going to stay stretched. And if you try to do that, We've got the technical ability to pass our way out, one-touch passing, and absolutely destroy you on the counter. And so we'll see how you like it. And like, I, I honestly think that 4-3-3 can kill a back three. I really think the way it stretches the pitch can kill a back three if you just don't let them dictate the territory. So when I say a courage problem, by the way, right? Like I'm, I don't mean that towards Arteta or the players to say they're cowards. It's just that like in a game, when a team wants to occupy those spaces and you don't give them the fear of of the repercussions of losing the ball, then there's nothing to stop them from dominating you. And like, if you look at Brighton, we did that first half rewatch. Paul, there's literally a moment, <laughs> Clive and I paused the video and laughed because every single Arsenal player, one through 11, was in our box. In our box. And like, the funny thing is the last five minutes of the first half against Brighton, go watch it. It flips. Suddenly, we do push up. We do get out. And once we do that, Brighton has to sink. And when Brighton sinks, you know what happens? They have no exit. Yeah. It was Jean-Paul Sartre time for them, right? Like, they, they'd get the ball back because we were sloppy, <laughs> but they couldn't go anywhere with it because they didn't have an exit because they had sunk too deep. And the number one way to get killed by press and get killed by a back three is to not, not – give them the challenge of reacting to the space behind their wingbacks in particular. And I don't think we did that well. So like, you know what I mean? I don't think it's yeah. like we can't handle a back three. No, I think absolutely. the players have to be brave. The coach has to be brave. And you just have to say, we're making a commitment to keep that accordion expanded. And if you come try to do this with your wingbacks, you're going to get killed. You know? Yeah, I think that's exactly like my two areas of disappointment with Brighton were how uh, poorly and how uncommitted to playing out from the back we were. Um, like, and generally we don't from a, a kick out. Uh, if we play out from the back, it's in open play. And I just thought we were very, given how badly going along was working for us, I thought that was really disappointing. And what we did, like, we had plenty of opportunities still, even if they had higher XG and, and overall deserved more than we deserved. We had plenty of opportunities getting into our box and we executed poorly and I, I guess my third area disappointment was we didn't get players into the right area of the pitch when the ball was knocking around and they were getting all the second balls knocked down from Dan Burns though like we just didn't get our resources refused to call him by his actual name because Dan Burns yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Fuck> him. um <laughs> and so like my issues were weren't against weren't the back three, it was all about us and where we, how and where we deployed our resources and how, if you want, I like the term brave as long as people don't get carried away. It's not that the guys are cowardly. It's, it's the Klopp thing. He said it about Liverpool, who are a brave team. He basically said about them sitting too deep and not playing football and et cetera, et cetera. And he was, and like, he didn't say in that to be, I don't know that he said, to be brave but on the sideline he was literally shouting at them be brave 
be brave, right? So this is something players respond to. He's emotionally very intelligent. That's the word. We need to be braver. Yeah, and I, I think... I think we can. And and look, some of that, maybe you're playing some young players who you don't really have the discipline about how you have to react to these situations. I, I don't know. I, I, I think... I think we're bright and we just didn't expect it to go like that. We didn't expect the shitty weather, weather to feel that shitty. We didn't expect... We knew they'd press, but we didn't expect it. Like, there's kind of a shock element. It's like, you know you're about... To, have you ever fallen into freezing cold water? Uh, like sea or something like that dived in fallen in but i've I've opted to go in yeah Yeah. and you're like i know it's going to be really cold i'm going to brace myself and then you're going holy like you're you lose your body for like 10 15 20 seconds and you're like and i think the first half was a lot like that we came back at at the end of the first half and the second half we were better maybe they were a little more tired yeah the funny thing is, if the first half goes on another five minutes, I you know I think that would yeah. have been very good for us. It We're turns the out they, they, that's yeah. not how football works. So um, I think we can leave it there. I did want to ask you one final question. Mm-hmm. So just epistemologically speaking, when we consider Excuse the, the uh, ethical implications of, of cultural more – no, I'm kidding. If you missed this, Paul and I had – I don't know. What would you call it? A, a, a 24-hour a ding-dong. Because <laughs> we do what we do, baby. We make it do what it do. Okay, I think it's enough. We can leave it there. We don't need to revisit that. And if you no, want to no. Twitter, I, I do think there was – it, like I thought about it a lot. I'm not going to talk about what we talked about because yeah. then we kick it off. Yeah. But it's really interesting to go like the thing about morals and ethics is they don't do a teach morals and ethics because once you've done morals and ethics, it's easy. It's because it's hard even when you get like that's why there's four or five different ways of approaching morals and ethics. Yep. It's because in life it's gray, it's messy, it's hard and Ethics continues, morals and ethics continue to be continue to be hard, even when you're all trained up and you think you know what's right and wrong. It's yeah. multivariate and it's hard. But MBS is a bad MF. Yeah, no, no disagreement there. And I will say the only reason I even got roped into the first place is because you called me Ron Burgundy. <laughs> and after that, I was just like, well, screw this guy. Now we're You will read anything that's on a prompter. I will read anything that is on the prompter. Okay, so uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Woohoo! I know you won't be with us, bud. We will miss you. But uh, I certainly hope a lot of you listening will be with us at the uh, Victoria Tavern on Sunday, Holloway Road. Uh, you, if you're ticketed, come at 3. If not, come at 4.30, and you'll be able to meet representatives of the club, James McNicholas, um, James Benj, Tim, Clive, and myself. And we just you know, really- You know what's yeah. really interesting for me? Um, we had that chat with Clive, and he said, I could tell you some stories and stuff. This uh, this was off mic. Mm-hmm. And, and what I heard was he's basically taking you to join the Arsenal Ultras, mm-hmm. and you're going deep undercover. And in about two weeks' time, you won't come back. In about two weeks' time, uh, you will be. We'll see you on screen. <laughs> I would be shirtless, <laughs> flares going off uh, as police uh, send in the riot squad down to the section that you're leading the charge on. This is how oh, I. Picture I would your be people. the Willian signing for the Arsenal Ultras. <laughs> let me tell you that it would be old, ill-prepared to contribute. <laughs> it's just not. not you and good Clive. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think uh, you can bare-chested. Yeah. You've got me going now. All right. Uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Woohoo! My name is Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Um, thank you so much for your questions. Thank you so much for everything, really. Gosh, it just is exciting. I'm on the plane tomorrow, so we'll, the content schedule might get a little wonky this week. The main pod this week will come out on Friday. 
um, is is what I'm expecting. And we've got some embargoed material from Tim that we'll have on that one, so you don't want to miss it. And uh, all that and much, much more. We love you. We'll talk to you after Arsenal 10, pal. Snow. No.